Hey everyone, it's Owen. Before we get stuck into what may be one of the most wide-ranging and entertaining conversations of the series so far, I want to say thank you for listening to our podcast, and a special thank you to those who have left us positive reviews on iTunes and elsewhere. I also want to let you know that we've just launched a new finance series called the Australian Finance Podcast. The first 10 episodes of this new series are aimed at beginners, and are a little more holistic than the Investors Podcast. It covers everything from the psychology of budgeting to insurance, robo-advice and ETFs. You can find the Australian Finance Podcast on the Rask Finance and Rask Media websites today. Thanks again for tuning in. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. Steve Johnson is the Chief Investment Officer of Forager Funds. Steve is one of the most respected value investors in Australia. A country boy at heart, Steve's investing journey started with the ASX share market game and a shared passion for investing with his lifelong friend, Greg Hoffman. Steve worked at what became UBS and after graduating university, he headed to Macquarie. In the early 2000s, he teamed up to buy the Intelligent Investor, which was later separated from Forager. In this conversation, we discuss Steve's investment process, including actively seeking out sectors or markets in distress, competitive advantages, and tools for improving your returns. I had never met Steve prior to this chat, but my impression of him was that he is a humble and intellectually honest investor with loads of integrity. I stand by that. Though Steve might say much of his success was due to luck, I think there is an obvious connection between his successes and him being a smart, honest and likeable person. Here's Steve talking about his passion for marathons. Like a lot of things in life, I fell into marathon running after I finished playing rugby. Uh, mate and I registered for a race over in South Africa. You had to run a marathon to qualify for the race that was in South Africa. So we went off and ran a qualifying marathon and I got the bug and I enjoy it. And it's a bit of meditation for me now and got a good crew of people that I run with. Okay. I, I noticed there were some um, photos in the 2018 review you did. Does anyone else here at Forager run with you? Uh, we do like the JP Morgan Challenge and our VSAs run a couple of half marathons, but nobody else is up for the, the full 42.2 kilometres. <laughs> I don't blame them. Uh, okay, so the way we normally start with this podcast series is we try and understand more about you and your upbringing. I watched a Livewire interview with you, I think it was from a couple of years ago, and um, you gave some great insight into who you are, and I'll link to that in the show notes. But did you, I think you mentioned you grew up in country or rural New South Wales, is that right? Yeah, a place called Wellington, which is out near Dubbo in, in western New South Wales. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And is, were you on a farm? or? So my parents were both school teachers uh, and we lived in town till I was probably 12 years old. But my father came from a, a family of farmers and he uh, we owned a small farm near town when I was a child. 
and that has since expanded since I left home. But we moved out to the farm probably when I was 12, and it was very labour-intensive. So I spent a lot of my youth uh, doing slave labour for my father <laughs> on the farm. Yeah, the 14 and 9 months rule obviously doesn't apply when you live on a farm. <laughs> That's exactly right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's when you can reach the pedals of the ute, then you can start working. <laughs> yeah, you can go chuck the hay bales out. That's right. Uh, so you grew up in rural New South Wales. How did you come to be involved in finance or investing? Like, where did that spark go off for you? Well, it was a childhood friend of mine, Greg Hoffman, who had been interested in in investing for a long time. I think, I guess, prior to the finance thing, I'd always loved maths at school. And uh, we went to the horse races a lot with my father when I was a child. And I was fascinated by odds and, and probabilities and started reading some of those horse racing books fairly early in life about trying to work out probabilities and, and odds and thinking about that that concept pretty early on. So mm. when it came time to do probability and, and odds in my school years, I was already pretty advanced with that. And I, I think it was a natural, I mean, my family had never done any investing. It wasn't a big thing in our school. And you know, I got to the end of school and nobody suggested to me that you should maybe go into finance. Mm. We had a careers department, but it, it didn't come to, to anyone's mind to think about that. But you know, we had been interested in the stock market through school. We played the ASX investing game uh, in year 11 and, and did fairly well in that. And I think it was just a natural extension of those interests that I already had in life. Do you think, well, did Greg grow up, grow up with you? Okay. So we actually went to school together, yeah, oh, right. from okay. kindergarten. It's funny how still, I, I, I can imagine you're pretty close now because he's still involved in the business. Yeah, he's right? the, the chairman of our business still. And in fact, we've actually got a, a group of friends that all went through school together that are still very, very very close many years after and, and lots of people out there doing very interesting things with their life as well. Mm, great. I, yeah, I, I see Greg's name pop up on Twitter a lot of the time. Um, you you came third in the, the ASX challenge. Yeah. Yeah. How did you do that? We, we, we arbitraged the rules was probably the short of it. This was back in the pre-internet days, so they used yeah. to send you a disc send it all the way from Sydney, I assume, out to Wellington and it, it came with real stock prices on the disc and every fortnight you could buy or sell, you could update your portfolio by buying or selling shares and then you send it back. But you had a fortnight where the prices were fixed on the day that they sent it out to you and then by the end of the two-week window when you had to send it back, you could just pick up the paper and say what's already moved here. Now, you took the risk that something moved the other way in the two weeks between you sending it back and, mm-hmm. and the prices updating again, but it was a pretty good head start for knowing, you know, if there'd been a takeover or something had moved significantly, you just moved your whole portfolio into the few <laughs> stocks that have moved the most. So that's the way we played the game pretty much every couple of weeks, and we still only managed to come third. So someone was obviously yeah. arbitraging it even better than us. <laughs> of course, someone's got to come first, and who knows how they did it. Um, you... You in that in that live boy interview, I also found out something I didn't know about you, which is that you you studied engineering for a fleeting moment. Why did you pick engineering? So my older brother was an engineer. Uh, so we're three boys that all went through the same school. Uh, I had a teacher. My mum was a teacher at the primary school. My dad was a teacher at the high school. So it was all very close for a very long time. And and I honestly just didn't know what to do when I finished school. And um, he was an engineer and I liked maths and I thought that sounds like a sensible job. So I just put in the application and ended up uh, getting into civil engineering at the University of New South Wales. I managed to fail every subject in my first session. didn't turn up to too many classes and and had a lot of things going on in my life. And looking back, it was actually a really interesting part of it. I was 17. I went to a very small country school. I had some very good teachers and 
you know, four or five people in most of my classes, the three-unit maths class and the physics class weren't overly popular at school. And, you know, to the extent I'm still really good friends with my English teacher from school. People used to ring me at home and say, have you done your homework? And then you get to the big university. There wasn't one other – there was one other person from my school actually at university and that was it. And you just lost that support network completely and people didn't care whether you turned up or didn't turn up. You're trying to look after yourself for the first time in life. Mm -hmm. You're trying to cook and clean. I was trying to make a career playing rugby league as well at the time and just all of this stuff going on. And uh, looking back, it was very fortunate. It was also I went through school with um, a lot of Indigenous kids who are still good friends of mine now, a lot of people from different backgrounds. And it was interesting going through that phase, how important my family and the support network were. You, know, you fail every subject, it's easy for a life to unravel from there, but my parents were very much, you need to stay in Sydney and you, it's going to be okay and, and we'll help you out and how about you try something else. And, you know, I had friends that went through, I guess, similar issues and ended up in, in very different situations. So looking back, it was actually a very vulnerable time in my life, but you don't actually think much of it at the time, you know. I just sort of got on with it and, yeah, and kept going. Yeah, roll with the punches. It, it is that it's a, try, it's a trying time in many people's lives, right? Like you said, the, you've got to adapt. You've got to fend for yourself in some respects. I'm always uh, surprised when I speak to other investors how many of them are engineers. It's like they've got a curious mind. They need to know how things work. That, and that curiosity drives them to investing because they want to know what makes things tick. It's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing. So the next stage in your journey was to take a job at UBS, is that right? Yeah, I, I was still good friends with Greg Hoffman at the time. So he had got a job at Coopers and Librand, eventually what became Link Market Services, so in the share registry at, at Coopers and, and Librand. And he was, from the day we left school, trying to angle his way into something related to the share market and sort of taking any job that helped. And he just he just said to me, why don't you go and get a job for six months, try and get something in the city and mm. and see whether you work out at the end of that what you want to do. And and I just got a random job. It was in a mail room, but for a finance company, uh, again, a long story, but what's now UBS it used to be called SPC Warburg back in the day and a whole bunch of acquisitions and things ended up becoming UBS. But... That was a very, very fortuitous thing for me to happen in my life. It sounds, you know, the mailroom to front office story is one that a lot of people like to tell. It was a very intentional thing at UBS to bring young, interested people into the mailroom, give them exposure to a whole heap of areas in the bank and then try and help them do something. So it wasn't just a random, you know, you get spotted in the mailroom. It was part of a program at UBS to try and try and get young people that were interested in, in markets a job on, yeah. the, on the bottom rung. And uh, I, met, I just met some wonderful people there that really looked after me, uh, told me to go back to university and what to study. And then they actually helped me all the way through university. I worked at UBS hmm. as much as I could when I wasn't at university. I knew what I wanted to do, so I ended up getting very, very good marks at, at university the second time around. They actually funded part of my university fees towards the back end of that as well. So... That was, uh, and it's been a common experience in my life. I've just had people go out on a limb for me and really look after me. The, the last two years of that were in the accounting division at UBS doing, it was fixed interest accounting effectively, so so trying to report the results on a daily basis for the guys who were trading fixed income stuff there. And it was just, it was fantastic exposure and, and a great bunch of people. Can you circle back to that? Uh, in a mailroom, can you fill me in? What, what was your day-to-day -day role? sorting and delivering mail Literally and doing photocopying and for people yeah, yeah okay i mean i assume it's still big now but 
it was probably even in bigger back then, just the amount of courier stuff coming in and out, mail coming in and out. But then you'd go and deliver that to yeah. all the people on the trading floors. And as a young 18-year-old guy, the, mm. the trading floor was a, a particularly interesting space. And the guys were actually a lot of fun. Like they'd, they'd make fun of you and torment you. And, you know, we actually got quite involved uh, in everything that was going on. And then the corporate finance guys always needed we need someone to stay back and print all this stuff and bind it and help us out on this project. And, you know, they would try and involve you in things that were going on there as well. So it was an early, you know, we typically kick off before seven. Hmm. It was a really busy morning. And then, you know, we used to play cricket in the mailroom in the afternoon and all sorts of things. So there wasn't a lot happened once you got your morning job done, but it was just the exposure that was good. And it actually suited me. My, my boss there uh, was a mad rugby league fan and he let me leave early most days so I could get football training in the afternoon and all of that worked out pretty well as well. Great. As you say, fortuitous. Um, you graduate from uni and then you take a job at Macquarie. What, what, what kind of things were you working on there? That was in the – it was called Project and Structured Finance uh, back then. Mm-hmm. Nerida Campbell was running my division at UBS. She ended up going off and being CFO of uh, Magellan when those guys left UBS and started a business there. I got offered a job in her department in accounting at UBS and she said to me, look, I think you're going to be pretty bored here. You're obviously interested in investing in markets. How about we – I'd never written a proper CV in my life, so how about we put a CV together for you and help you apply for some grad jobs? And, you know, for a company that had – basically funded me and helped me through university to be that helpful was quite unique because they had two grad jobs in corporate finance at UBS and I didn't get one of those and and she helped me find one somewhere else and that happened to be at Macquarie there was a whole bunch of luck there again I got a job in um, in risk at Macquarie in the grad program they then bought BT and said, we don't need you anymore because we want to bring someone across from BT, but there's good news. Your test results are really, really good, and we think you're actually more suited to another division anyway, so how about you go off and meet with these people? I ended up doing something that was probably far more interesting, which was it was a weird combination. So Nicholas Moore, who's just retired as CEO of Mm. Macquarie, was running a, a relatively small division within Macquarie called Structured Finance. So they were doing aircraft leases and, and things like that for, for Qantas. They were an entrepreneurial group of people and it sort of grew from there into other uh, structured product type stuff and then into infrastructure and his division started doing overlapping really a lot with what was corporate finance. So most of the work I did there was infrastructure related. Uh, we tried to do the Bondi Rail from Bondi Junction down to Bondi Beach, which mm-hmm. eventually got canned. I worked on Dalrymple Bay Coal Terminal for a while, and then two years of my life was Macquarie's purchase of Sydney Airport, which we had to do twice because September 11 happened two weeks before we were supposed to lodge oh. a bid the first time. It got cancelled, and then we turned around and did it again. I imagine you would have learned a lot from that experience on Sydney Airport in particular. And it's, am I right in saying that you've owned it, the shares since then? Yeah, on numerous occasions, yeah. The, the value of that asset and the opportunity that was there in terms of the retail opportunities were very, very clear. Macquarie had brought in a bunch of people from the UK that had experience capitalising on, on retail opportunities and they knew straight away that 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 opportunity was going to be very significant at Sydney Airport. It's since become, you know, people are doing it all over the world mm. now, but it was one of the, f- the first, I think, to recognise that opportunity. And I remember my boss said to me when we started, I had to 
worked very, very long hours building the financial model that we then used to convince other people to invest in the airport. And he said to me, you've got a really, really important job, but I'm telling you now that nobody has enough money to pay the right price for this asset. So our job is to find the investors with the most money and whoever does that is going to win because it's not the economics that are going to hold it back. And there was a lot of criticism at the end of that process for the price that Macquarie paid, but in hindsight, it was a very attractive one. I think in terms of lessons, obviously that specific infrastructure, you know, the focus on cash flows rather than accounting earnings was a huge, huge lesson for me. And, you know, it's something we've made money out of time and time again where people are looking at accounting earnings and saying this assets or this business is not making any money and you look at the cash flows that are coming out of it and you can get very, very attractive returns. So particularly in the stock market because we're used to dealing with earnings and multiples and and we're used to being very sceptical of anyone who uses any other metric. Mm. Those infrastructure assets have been very attractive. But look, just the culture at Macquarie, I ended up, you know, I was from a small public school in a country town and I ended up working with a bunch of people from very similar backgrounds that were doing amazing things. And I think for my confidence and my belief in myself and my belief that I could go out there and compete those people and that culture were probably more important than than anything else. If I'd ended up mm-hmm. working with a a really blue bud group of people that were relying on their connections to get things done, I probably would have thought, well, that's the way that it happens and I can't do that. Whereas these guys were nothing, literally nothing was can't be done. It was, well, we can do it if we want to throw enough resources and enough people at it. And, and I think that was probably more than any particular business or finance-related thing. That was probably the, the biggest thing I took out of there. I'm going to circle back to all of this in a moment because um, you, you've used the word luck already in this conversation and um, I might, we might talk about the difference between luck and maybe, I suppose, what you've earned and, and how you got what, you, what you've got to. Uh, I want to segue now into Forager. Probably the best way, I think, to understand Forager and its, its story is to talk about... Um, the other business which you had before this, which was Intelligent Investor. Can you explain why you left Macquarie and, I guess, what happened next? So I, I had already decided to leave Macquarie but not told them before the opportunity uh, came up. I worked with a lot of great people there that were in their 40s, um, probably didn't want to be doing what they were doing. But by that point in time, a lot of private school fees and a massive mortgage and didn't really have a lot of choice. And I was in my 20s and I was single and I knew that that wasn't what I wanted to be doing in 20 years time. As much as I was loving it back then, I just thought this is not where I want to be. And I've seen these people get stuck and not be able to get out of it. So I had decided to leave and was thinking about a, a bunch of different things in, in different spheres. And Greg Hoffman, I mean, we'd been in touch the whole time. We'd actually done a lot of investing together, mm-hmm. private investing outside of, of Macquarie in, in a bunch of stocks over the years. And he had been working for Intelligent Investor since 2000. So this was 2003. He'd been working at Intelligent Investor since 2000. And he had really converted that business from what I would say historically was a tip sheet into something that was conservative, long-term advice mm-hmm. for for retirees. And the growth of that business coincided with self-managed super funds, the rise of the online brokers so that more and more people were doing it themselves. And then the two guys who founded that business wanted to sell it and and get out and Greg rang me and said, I think this is an interesting little business. How about we try and get some money together and and we buy it, Um, which, yeah, very stupidly, I think, in hindsight, we, Mm. we did. 
some of a couple of people that I worked with at Macquarie sort of funded us into it and helped us out with the purchase price and yeah. So it's an intelligent investor subscription investing research service, right? Correct. That's right. Thanks to Greg, it had become a value investing publication. So you know, the idea was to buy things for less than they were worth. Unfortunately, we didn't get them all right in in terms of that, but that was the pitch. And I, and I think the and and it carries through to to Forager these days. But the transparency, the honesty, and the plain language all came from from the guys who founded the business rather than Greg or I. That was there. Mm-hmm. There's a guy John Addis who taught us all how to to write and mm-hmm. had a a, an extreme hatred for for jargon and for confusing language and and for trying to overcomplicate things because he had a view that the industry intentionally overcomplicated things because that was a way of making sure your client doesn't know too much and and that ethos in that publication you know it it coincided with growth in the market but it attracted a really loyal following as well and and still has that today. I always thought from the outside that Intelligent Investor had been pretty successful for you. I mean, you operated the business for a number of years. I suppose the nature of subscription businesses is such that everything goes well until maybe the market turns on you. I've heard you say before that the GFC 2008-2009 was quite trying for you personally as an investor and you learned a lot, but also for the business. Can you talk us through what happened and, and, and probably I suppose this is around the time that the funds management business was born and the idea for that. So let's maybe take us through that that part of your journey. Yeah, so we had some really good years early on and fortunately we're able to pay back the money that people had lent us to buy the business. We probably got most of the purchase price back 2003 through 2006. The business started to struggle before the financial crisis hit. I, I think we got some things wrong and... Some of those lower quality businesses, they were going wrong well before we had a full-blown financial crisis. You know, the strains were starting to cause problems with weaker businesses a long time before you saw it across the market as a whole. That started to affect us. I I think competition, uh, the availability of information started to impact the business as well. And it's just a tough, really tough business because you just have a natural churn. You've got to ask people to write you a check every year or send you a money transfer. And at that point in time, a lot of people decide not to. So even in a really good year, we lost 20% of our customers every year. And in a bad year, it could be 40% of your customers. And and you've got to replace them. And replacing them was costing more and more money. So it sort of went from nicely profitable to probably break even from 2006 through 2008. And then we had a couple of really difficult years where we had to shrink the business to fit what was a shrinking revenue line. It was also, we basically bought the business without any cash in the bank, but it had, from an accounting perspective, a lot of subscription liability. So people would pay 12 months in advance. That money was gone, but the revenue from a tax perspective hadn't yet been booked. So when the business shrank, not only were we not getting cash flow, but we were still paying tax on the basis of revenue from bigger prior years. So we were getting sent very significant bills from the tax office at the same time as we were dealing with a, a cash crunch in the business. So, yeah, we we had to go through. We had to get that business down in terms of its cost base, and that was a very painful process because it was all people, and it was all people that I'd worked very closely with over a long period of time. Yeah, for me, uh, being intimately familiar with this, I think a lot of the intangible value of these businesses comes from uh, the network that that you grow as you as you build up a business like that, which we'll get to in a minute. But 
I've also heard you say that it also the the GFC also added helped you add more rigor to your process by I suppose working out what didn't work and then and then growing from there. Yeah. So can you comment on that at all? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe given the past twelve months, which I'm sure we'll eventually get to, we, we didn't learn enough. But I, I think uh, we, we actually got a letter from from a subscriber. Maybe, maybe before it would have been before the financial crisis, and the letter said, "I don't know you, but I know you're young, and I know you're male, because only a young male could write things with such confidence." <laughs> and and that that hit me at the time. I was like, "Well, we are young and male, so maybe he's hit on something here." But that confidence that we had as young investors that you, know, you knew what was going to happen and that you're always going to be able to make money out of things and you've got some crystal ball into the future. That got beaten out of us pretty quickly through the financial crisis. Um, I think that the piece around understanding how sustainable a business is as well, you, you just get this snapshot with financial statements that is at a point in time and we tend to we tend to be way too narrow in terms of the range of potential outcomes that we can think of, both the downside and, and the upside, but particularly on the downside. You know, the amount of times something has worked out worse than what we thought was our downside case says to you you're getting something wrong in terms of, of estimating your downside case. So we build a lot of process through uh, how we go about picking stocks. That was through the first two years of the funds management business as well where things didn't go particularly well. We've added to it over time. It, it's still a challenge, and I think it's a challenge not to lose the, not to lose the ability to respond very quickly to things. Because I think most ideas should actually be simple rather than a truckload of work. It should be that clear cut that mm. that you see it pretty early. Most of our research and work now is around the due diligence to make sure that that original idea was right, and my own psychological shortcomings just trying to put in place processes that help you overcome them. Mm. We'll dig into that in just a moment, but so the the genesis of the, or the, I suppose the inception of the funds came at a time when the traditional subscription business may have been struggling. Was that the the motivation, or did you want to manage money? Did you think that that was just a, a more efficient way to, I suppose, and, and uh, not only more more efficient, but the the best way to I suppose bring about those returns for your your clients? And yeah, when we first bought the business, we had an idea that one day it might be a very good platform for doing funds management and that funds management would be a better business than a subscription business. So mm. it wasn't something that we'd never thought of. But like a lot of things in my business life, it wasn't planned at the time that we did it. It sort of just happened. Mm. We actually, uh, one of our disastrous investments was a company called Timbercorp and they'd gone into receivership right. and were selling or the receivers were trying to get rid of large tracts of land with timber on it and with almonds on it and a whole heap of projects and we our idea was that those assets were going to be being sold very 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 cheaply and that maybe we could do something from a fund perspective that was specifically set up to go and take advantage of those opportunities that were out there that was all way too complicated and difficult and you know, we formed a view that once it had all happened, putting that episode behind us was probably the best thing. But we've gone through the process of how do you actually set up a fund? How do you do the administration of it? Custodians, responsible entities, all those sorts of things. We thought this is actually not that that difficult. And there had always been, if you looked at our own personal portfolios, there was a fairly big difference between that and the portfolios that were in the newsletter because we were restricted to bigger than 100 million market cap 
in the newsletter. Mm. And the idea was, well, how about we run a fund to invest in some of these smaller opportunities and give people access to those? And you know, we started and it was $10 million when we... You know, I, I see people that have started some funds off the back of newsletters more recently that are 50 and 100 at the first go-round. This was obviously 2009, so a difficult time, but we raised 10 and it didn't grow much for the first two years, really. It was a tiny sum of money. Did you grow the business purely through that retail channel? Did you have any... You know, in traditional uh, funds management industry, is the strategy is to just hire BDMs and go out and get ratings and speak to institutions and that type of thing. Or was this just purely direct to retail? It was, and still is, largely direct to retail. And I, again, we didn't sit down and plan it because of this, but the world had changed in a way that enabled us to do that. That just wasn't possible ten years prior. Our ability to communicate with people to build that relationship that you need and to market our services only existed because of the internet. I mean, all of the newsletters and the media and the videos and the quarterly reports and everything that we do, we can only send it out because we have a medium through which to do that. So the initial investors were all intelligent investor subscribers. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was a a, a big spread right from the start um, and it's still a very significant percentage of our our money today and even new people that come to us when you say where did you hear about us it was well I was a subscriber to Intelligent Investor back in the day and I, and I knew you from then so mm. it's all been direct and it's hard work and it's slow we've got two and a half thousand clients in the business today across mm. just over 300 million of funds under management so you know most most funds management businesses that would have 10 clients that are really really important to them Ours is a very good spread. It, it's hard work building it, but it's actually good because you don't have any one person that can ring you up and say, if you don't change the way you're doing things, I'm going to pull my money. Mm. Well, they can say it, but you don't have to listen to them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because, yeah, there's, there's, I suppose there's pros and cons, but when I was reading something on your blog recently, I can't remember if it was you or Gareth perhaps that talked about how your loyal investors i suppose you could call them that know what to expect from you and they they trust and they like you and they know the brand and that helps you invest better and it helps you invest at times probably when things are a little trying perhaps like now maybe you could say Uh, so what would be your advice to other fund managers i don't want to give away secret sauce but how do you what makes it what makes the forager brand so valuable to your clients i don't think it matters what what type of client it is, but it is essential to have philosophical alignment with that client. And you need to turn people away who don't have it because especially if you're running an open-ended fund, it is going to cause you lots of problems at the worst possible time when when you don't need it. So I, I, I think the way we've written historically, the way we've communicated it's only appealed to a small subset of the population, but that subset gets it and they invest for the right reasons. And, you know, I always think that the, the first two years we had were were bad and that was probably the best thing that could have happened to us from a business perspective because anyone that came in through that period, even immediately after that period, they'd sat down and said, I understand what they're doing, I understand the process and I think it's going to work long time, term rather than, well, they made 30% last year, so I'm going to put some money in mm. on, the, on the basis of that. And 
So for us, that that is the alignment that we need. We need people that recognise we're going to go through periods of big underperformance. We need people that are going to invest for long periods of time. If your philosophy is different, you need people that are aligned to whatever that philosophy is. And if if the decision maker is actually a gatekeeper rather than the end client, you need two sets of philosophical alignment. You need it to be with the planner and then you need that planner to be able to have the conversation with the underlying client. We've had situations, it's tiny in terms of proportion of our funds, but we've had situations where we've had a planner who loves what we do and understands us, but they've also got to explain themselves to a client mm-hmm. at the other end. So you go through those periods of underperformance, they're copying a lot of stress from their client base and, and they may have to take their money out even if they completely understand what's going on. So that's why we've largely focused on on direct Um it's sort of self-fulfilling as well. I think we're more appealing to the direct space. Mm. Yeah, there's loads of videos and educational content on the website, on the Forager website, which I think is probably a given or a must-have for someone that does target the retail channel because you've got to keep them um, engaged with the, the strategy and also up-to-date with what's going on. One thing I talked about a lot with my prior guests is this idea of brand value and the personal brand. How do you think your personal brand as an investor, I mean, you're always in the media and, and, and doing things and, and speaking to investors. How do you think that has impacted the success of Forager? Oh, I think it's essential. It's a risk for us as a business because, uh, you know, it's key man risk that if something happens to me, it's going to have a big impact on the business. And I would like to think that over the next 20 or 40 years, there's less of that dependence on one person. But I think especially in the retail space, people invest with people. Mm. and uh, they want to invest with someone that they they trust and that they have a history with, and you can't really build. I mean, if you look at all of the successful direct-to-retail businesses, there is a personality there that, that has been a fairly big part of its success. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's true, and I often ask it that question in a different way. I ask, would you invest with another fund manager who perhaps doesn't have that their name on the door, so to speak, would you invest with a fund manager that I suppose didn't have that alignment? I would invest with a computer. Uh, <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'm a big fan of low-cost index funds, so I, I, I don't necessarily have that same I need to have the relationship with the person. I, I think if I'm backing someone to do something different, then I need to understand their processes and the way they go about things. I think the average retail investor, though, probably places too much emphasis on the personality and not enough on the actual process and the way they go about it because there's lots of there are there are people out there that are not good communicators don't want to communicate mm, that's a fair point. and and are very very good investors so i actually think it's a bit of a i mean it's helped us as a business there's no doubt about that but i, I think if i was advising someone who was retail i'd say that you know, in the psychology world, it's it's called liking and it's a psychological shortcoming that, that doesn't necessarily help you make the right rational decisions about where to invest your money. So it, it has helped us and I think it's crucial if you, if you want to build a business. But from an investor perspective, I'd spend all of my time focusing on process, replicability and scalability of, of what the person is doing. That's, that's a good point. And it's, a, it's an interesting counterpoint to some of the other answers that I've had to that question. So let's jump now into your investment process. You've got two funds, you've got Australian and international. What's the overriding investment philosophy that sets the framework for what you, how you go about things? 
I mean, we're value investors. So in both funds, we are trying to buy securities for less than what we think the value of the business is. Mm-hmm. We have historically, I would say, been at the more extreme value end of the spectrum. So we have been prepared and willing to buy lower quality businesses where we think we are getting adequately compensated mm-hmm. for the, the quality of the business or preferably where we think the business is being misunderstood or perceived as as lower quality and where it's it's actually not. So really that has formed the basis for everything that we've done. We've done some of that at the large cap end of the spectrum. We talked about airports before. It's been a, a great investment class for me here in Australia with Sydney airports couple of crises, a SARS outbreak, you know, there's been times when you could buy that asset very cheap. And I think for the first six or seven years of of its listing, a pretty widespread misunderstanding of the business model. And then when we started investing globally, we said, well, this is a space that's now 20 years old in Australia. Listed airports are pretty new in a lot of different countries around the world. Let's just go and look at that asset class and, and try and find areas where we think we might be able to understand something better than everyone else. And that's probably been the big evolution for me as an investor over the last 10 years is to move away from a pure statistical, this thing's cheap because it's five times earnings, mm-hmm. to, to almost starting with the other end of the equation and saying, go and find things that people have a reason for selling for a silly price. Mm-hmm. Yeah, If you start with the why would something be cheap rather than just looking for things that are statistically cheap, you're going to narrow the universe down a lot more quickly. Mm, it sounds like it to me that you, you've mentioned before, and we'll dig into this in just a minute, but you have this checklist, but it's almost like you have this simple idea that one of the team, one of you analysts, one of the analysts or yourself throw up and then the rest of you kind of pull that apart and, and see how it would go through, a, say, a checklist. Can you tell me how you go about valuing or, and even before that how you go about filtering the universe then because you've got a, a reasonably large universe maybe reasonably large universe here in australia but then overseas is a huge universe um, i think you've talked about before the how your team copes with that that universe and how you refine it down yeah i, I start looking for signs of distress and that is the first uh, the first criteria that we need to meet, and it actually narrows the universe down very, very significantly, and it's actually very hard in Australia at the moment, I think, to find those signs of distress. The market's not crazily optimistic here, but we're just not, you know, every meeting you go to for a stock's got 20 people turning up at it. I just think that the market is very competitive at the moment and people are mostly being rational. So I don't look at it and say, well, you know, three years ago, mining services as a sector, nobody wanted to own it. Uh, it had performed very poorly. It was just a really hated space. And immediately that says to me, well, I'm going to go there and, and look for opportunities. It's true internationally for us as well. Uh, so we go looking for countries and regions and, and sectors that are distressed. Um, auto sector is a really good example at the moment of, of one where everyone's very pessimistic about its future and we go and look at that sector and say well can we find something here where the pessimism is overdone i would say internationally and it's it's helped us a lot to narrow the universe down but we've also tried to overlay it with we want to stick to areas where we think we're at least a chance of having an edge over the local investors so try and find you know in any market there might be 90 percent of the stocks that 
the local investors have an edge over because it's a local business or it's regulatory mm. or there's something that they've covered for a long time and no. But there's also 10% that maybe don't belong listed there or maybe it's a new business model that's been like airports happening here in Australia for a long period of time. You know, we owned a Jumbo Interactive here in Australia. It's an online retailer of lottery tickets and we ended up owning a competitor of its in Germany where the business model was new but the CEO of the company in Australia had told us that that business was going to be the number one in Germany because they had all of these advantages. And yet we try and and that globally narrows you know, there's 30,000 listed companies around the world that we could hypothetically own. But if you apply that filter of we only want to play in places where we think we can be competitive, it narrows it down to a much, much smaller field. Mm. Um, this checklist that I've heard you talk about before, what what are the types of things? So we've taken this top-down view, but then what, when you get to the security-specific mm. level, what are, you, what are the types of things you're looking at? So I would say it's mostly a post-idea checklist. So... What am I looking for? I'm looking for uh, a stock where the present value of all of the cash flows that it's going to provide me in the future are substantially more than the price that I'm paying today. Mm -hmm. Now, that may be a shrinking stream of cash flow streams that you're buying very cheaply. That's pretty hard to do. You know, those cash flows that you estimate often end up being much, much worse than the ones that you had predicted. It may be one where you think the business is going to grow faster than is currently implied by the price that you're paying today and those cash flow streams are going to come through growth. So we try not to limit ourselves to we want to buy low PE or high PE or we want to buy great management teams or not great management teams. We just try and make sure that the price we're paying compensates us for if it's not the management team that we'd really like, how important is that to the business and then what discount do we make to the future cash flows to compensate for those, those factors? So all of those factors just feed into evaluation and then you know, our investment thesis, it should really come down to a couple of pages at most. I like this stock because, and there's usually three or four things that you're saying, you are always saying, I have some perception here that is different from what the market price is currently implying, and you need to know what those things are. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can sit down and build a complicated cash flow model, but unless you understand what the current market price is implying and what the differences are with what you've got, then I don't think you'll end up making money out of that. So mm-hmm. all of that is our idea. Yep. We present that to the team. People go, I don't like it or I do like it or... Um, or somewhere in between, you need to do work on these particular areas, which is more often the case. And then we would start that checklist process, which is let's make sure we've gone through all of the things that we've added to over the years because we've done something wrong. Um, It starts out with the business. What is the business's history and background? How does it fit into the ecosystem? Do we expect the industry to grow? Do we expect its market share to grow? Do we think it has a competitive advantage or not? After you've done all of that, why and how do you value this particular company? What are the key risks that you see? How do you monitor those risks? So what sort of things can you collect and monitor that might give you an early warning that something is going wrong? We've got a special section in there on psychology. So mm-hmm. you know, are your, have you thought about all of these different biases? Um, do you think you might be succumbing to some of them? We still make the same mistakes despite having that in there. But yeah, so the checklist covers all those sorts of things normal things that you would expect like cash flow conversion are the profits turning up as cash flow 
do you actually agree with the way they account for this business? You know, is the revenue recognition and the cost recognition a fair reflection of the, the economic value that's being created? And I'd say a significant number of our most successful investments have been where that, you know, people are just looking at the accounting earnings and we've formed a view that it's actually not representative of of value that is being created by that business. Mm. I've heard you say before you use part, uh, Porter's Five Forces. I find that to be a pretty useful tool in terms of getting the, the lay of the land in the industry as well. You've said before the idea is simple, the work is uh, due diligence, and uh, you've said... I've never researched my way into an idea, but only out of one. So I suppose that speaks to what you're just saying about not only the checklist, but also the research and the, the actual work that you put in after the idea is brought up. Can you give us an example of perhaps when someone's thrown up an idea and, and, and maybe something that may, I suppose, in your mind, turn something from being deep value to being a value trap? I think I've heard you talk about uh, debt or stressed balance sheets as, as one particular area where it can be quite hairy or prickly is there anything else i think one we've got wrong more often than we would like as yeah. well you know we've formed a view that that balance sheet's not a problem and it's turned out that it that it was so all of those things are well particularly the porter's five forces stuff we're not doing porter's five forces for the sake of it we're doing it particularly for a business where we are paying a premium price to it so the, the question is not go and do five, Porter's Five Forces. The question is what competitive advantage does this, does this business have? Mm. And we think Porter's Five Forces is a pretty useful framework for thinking about the different sources of competitive advantage and identifying which ones you think are relevant in this particular case. But you may say it doesn't actually tick any of those things, but I think it has a competitive advantage because of this reason and it's nothing to do with Porter's Five Forces. That is fine as long as that mm. that reason is valid. Um uh, we, we talk ourselves out of a lot of ideas. I'd say the the pass-through rate's one in five or, or one in six, and we try and do that early. So try, try and stop someone going away and spending two months working on something for it to get knocked over. Bring your idea to the team early. If we've got concerns, we raise them. Usually the analyst will go away and come back and say, that's pretty valid and I've changed my mind. And, you know, we, we I'm not... It's not often me just sitting there saying, you think that's a great idea, I think it's terrible, it's not going into the portfolio. We try and work as a team to get to the right answer rather than just knocking things on the head. But, I, I mean, we we spent a lot of time working on and talking about a stock called Cisram Medical Lasers. Recently, we'd owned an Italian company called LN that does surgical and medical laser equipment, so hair removal and tattoo removal and things like that. And there's a company listed in Hong Kong that's a direct competitor uh, it had recently been spun out of one of the big Chinese conglomerates and it looks like a pretty good business. It's got a bunch of, it was originally founded in Israel, a bunch of Israeli people running it now. Then we got to the governance piece of that equation and the whole board is people that are from the Chinese conglomerate originally. That business is going through a lot of problems and we just sat there and we said this business might generate a lot of profit and cash flow, but we just can't get confident about how that cash flow is going to come back to us as investors. And you know, it's enough to be a showstopper. Let's move on and look for something simpler. So it's not. It can be any one of the different factors that stops something from going ahead. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. You you've talked a lot about behavioural biases, and I think. You've identified two areas where I suppose you get your investing edge 
And one of those, and you referred to the idea, you gave the example of Jumbo Interactive, uh, this Australian lottery business, and then you've taken that knowledge that you've gained, that informational edge, if you like, and you've parlayed that into a position in Germany, which is the Lotto 24. Are there any examples where you can say that, I suppose, the, the behavioural edge that you've gained or that you have has helped you do things that maybe other investors haven't? So and it's specifically what I mean is you've, you've said in, in one post in the, in, the, in the past that you're prepared to suffer. So can, do you have any examples of when perhaps that deep value, that sell-off has pr- proven to be exceptionally rewarding for you? Yeah. Uh, it's been a mixed... If you'd said to me two years ago, which of those two things is more important, mm-hmm. the informational edge or the psychological edge, I would have definitely said the psychological edge. And I think historically we have been renowned for and, and we've generally made money out of buying buying things that other people are clearly panicking about and just buying them because people are panicking. Mm-hmm. We've obviously done some work as well, but the main reason for us getting involved is because people are panicking. I don't know whether it's the changing nature of the economy and that some business models are now dead or not, but we've we've had we've suffered a few wounds in that space over the past couple of years and I guess it's made us sit back and question whether whether the informational edge is actually more important than the the psychological edge. Obviously we want to combine the two, but look, Service Stream would be far and away the most successful investment that uh, took a lot of patience and you know, was bought in a time of extreme uncertainty. And I think if there's one thing that we do that other people find very, very difficult, it is to take on uncertainty and get paid for it. We will buy things where we know at the time there's a chance that we're going to lose 100%. Mm-hmm. We make sure we get the position sizing right, but we say we think we are getting adequately paid for that minus 100 scenario because there's a good probability that it's substantially higher. And most people just want the psychological comfort of I've seen it turn, I've seen how it's going to play out and now I want to invest and they're happy to give up on the first 100% sometimes to do that. Uh, we're willing to be that provider of liquidity at a time when, when everyone wants to get out. I had this conversation with a, a few guests in the past and asked, is value investing dead? And oftentimes we read, you know, if a fund managers underperform, this many do that and et cetera, the list goes on. But... I mean, it, it may come back to how we define value, of course, but I've heard you say that you don't follow value investing as a religion. It's it, it's more so that it makes it, it's, it makes sense, right, yeah. to buy a dollar for fifty cents in the Australian shares fund. Are you focused on like the smaller end of the the market spectrum? And I suppose the the what I'm getting at is that informational edge that you might gain. Is it? Do you think it's easier to attain that in further down the market cap spectrum? Definitely. Uh, we, we have the flexibility to buy anything and we can and do own large cap uh, stocks. We've just recently been adding one very, very good business to the portfolio. But I, I would say the, the extreme outsized returns mostly come at the smaller end of the market just because there's more competition. Mm-hmm. And I also think the growthy end of the small market in Australia is very, very crowded. There are a lot of people doing small caps. There's not a lot of people that are doing what I'd say are value small caps. Mm. Mm. That has been a very unsuccessful place to be in over the past couple of years for sure. But 
I also think a lot of value investors use that as an excuse for things that they they get wrong because that you know when you say you're buying a dollar of value for 50 cents I think and I made this mistake a lot earlier in my life a lot of people go well there's a dollar worth of land there even a dollar worth of cash in an extreme situation I can buy it for 50 cents therefore I'm getting a bargain the real value of anything depends on the cash that ultimately comes back to you as the owner of that security Mm. and I think that's the step that everyone needs to think about and if you get that right it's not possible for you to lose money over a long enough period of time I bought a stream of cash flows if it gives me the stream of cash flows I get the money Mm. you don't need the market to recognize that for you to generate returns and if you look at our most successful investments you've got something like service stream that's making 13 or 14 cents a year of profit and paying most of it out as fully frank dividends and the share price was 20. So you sit there and say, let's say the market hadn't gone up tenfold since back then, I'd still be perfectly happy just sitting here collecting my dividends. So most of those value traps are actually just valuation mistakes. You 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 overestimated the amount of cash that you were going to get back or often as importantly, you underestimated how long it was going to take you to get it. You know, if you've got a dollar of cash and it doesn't turn up for 10 years' time, then it's only worth well, less than 50 cents. It's only worth 40 cents to you in today's dollar. So, look, I, I still think that philosophy worked and it has worked for us over, you know, it's been 10 years of pretty difficult times for value investing, but we've still found plenty of opportunities to, to make money at that end of the spectrum. And we've found a few good businesses in amongst it as well. I think keeping your eyes open to those opportunities that do come along in good businesses is really important. You mentioned earlier on, the idea that perhaps things are a bit competitive, you know, you go to meetings and there's 20 people at the meeting. In that smaller segment of the market, the smaller cap end of the market, are you confident that you'll still be able to outperform, that you'll still be able to find enough businesses to invest in long to the future? I mean, we're talking more about, you know, passive investing and the, the flows and all that type of thing. For now, yes, but it's something that I'm constantly, constantly thinking about and looking at, and even something we're trying to incorporate into our own processes. How do we, how do we get a computer to do more of the work that we are we are doing, and and can a computer actually do a better job of working out long term stock returns? They've got exceptionally good at working out what's going to happen in the next millisecond and mm. uh, carving a return out of the market from doing that. But can can you use those same concepts um, of data mining and artificial intelligence to work out what's going to happen over a five-year period, whether something that's trading at a big discount to its book value, is that gap going to narrow or not? What, what can we get out of the data to help us with that process? I think as long as greed and fear are human traits though that are driving the market, then we are going to get opportunities again to buy widespread cheap stocks. And I don't think anything can change that because ultimately it's still a human, you know, when the market is down, it's still a human that says, I want my money back and therefore the computer has to go and sell the stock. So what we end up with index funds is not going to change the fact that people panic and that causes severe mispricings, uh, but I'm, I certainly feel like at the moment the funds management industry in, in Australia, it's had a very good time. I think there's uh, a lot of competition out there and even at our value end of the spectrum, I just think there are more and more people looking for the same sorts of situations. And, and most of the things that I've had a good look at over the past year, your reject shops and retail food groups, these businesses where the share price is down 70 and 80%, 
maybe I'm just getting old, but those businesses, they genuinely look like they're in trouble. And I just talk to a lot of people that have had a good look at it. So it's not like you're sitting there saying, I, I just, my favourite situations are the ones that nobody even is talking about. You know, you really want to get into that that environment where people are not even looking at it and it's not worth their while looking at it rather than all 20 of us have had a look at it and I think I'm smarter than you. I think you need a big ego to think you're smarter than all of those people. I, I do think for us as well... We've made some mistakes over the past year that have been the main cause of our underperformance. We're also $150 million today compared to $20 million 10 years ago. And you know, we bought a stock that had a massive sell-off on a downgrade a couple of weeks ago where we've ended up with 2% of the portfolio in it, pretty much buying every share that we could buy on the day. Mm-hmm. The price is back up 50% in a week and a half since, I mean, that, that's helped and it's nice, but we would have liked to have had 5 or 6% of the portfolio in that stock. So I think you know, anyone that's telling you they can do small cap stuff effectively at a billion dollars in Australia, your, your universe is very, very narrow. And I think it's already having an impact on us at this size and we certainly don't want to get bigger than we are now. Hmm, that's interesting. Speaking of, so how do you think about positioning sizing? Do you, do you have any sort of metrics that you look at in terms of liquidity or anything like that when you're deciding how big to make a position? Uh, we need to think about it more. <laughs> we, we've ended up in some situ- I got a, a good email from a client the other day just saying, uh, you, you need to think more about the cost of getting out of these things when you're wrong, when you're taking... There's often liquidity on the way in when other people are panicking, but if we get that decision wrong at that point in time the cost for us to get out at this size can be very significant. So mm-hmm. I think we need to think more about our strategy on the way in for how we're going to realise that value. Historically, buy weight has been pretty effective for me that you know you don't always... If the strategy was clear to everyone, the opportunity wouldn't be there to start yeah, with. Right, yeah. uh, I, I think especially when we're taking some of these bigger positions in businesses, I, I think we need to do more work on these three things need to change for us to make money here. It might be board, it might be management, it might be strategy. Unless we think we can deliver on some of that change, we need to be very careful about investing our money into the situation to start with. So I think that liquidity is important in terms of position sizing. The the other issues that we try and weigh up are just risk and return. How much are we willing to lose here? I, I touched earlier on investing in things and people find this concept really hard to get their heads around but we will buy things where we think we might lose all of our money Uh, but we might put one percent of the portfolio into it because we think it can go up five or six fold on the other side if we're putting ten percent of the portfolio into something it may actually be lower prospective returns but we think the downside is is very limited in that situation and yeah i i'd rather run a portfolio of less number of stocks with big weightings in them but they're strong balance sheets and they're strong businesses and we're really confident they're going to grow. That's a much easier life and less stressful life than having these 4 and 5% positions in things that you're stressing about all the time and that you've got to work really hard on and you know, you're know you writing letters and meeting management teams all the time and, and it's just sure. a lot of hard work and I think your ability to do that across dozens of stocks is very limited. Mm. I, I, to change topics slightly, I, re- I received an email because I'm on the forager mailing list and I received an email recently asking for feedback about fees. What prompted the the, the engagement on, on fees specifically? Uh, 
It was actually, a lot of people seem to think that it was related to our performance and pushback from clients, but we hadn't actually had any of that at all on the fee side of things. So the issue, we have a performance fee in our Australian fund. It's a 1% base fee and we get a performance fee that's 10% of anything in excess of eight. Mm -hmm. When we started the international fund, we struggled to come up with a relevant index to start with. I mean, we, we plot our numbers against the MISCI World Index, but... There's basically zero crossover between those those two. And in hindsight, I wish we hadn't done it because you know, you've had an environment where the US has gone nuts, everything else has performed very poorly. I think we've actually done a really good job with that fund in the environment that we've been in, but people just line it up against Google and, and Netflix and, and say that performance hasn't been what I would hope for. But anyway, we, we only have a flat fee there because we couldn't come up with a structure that I thought was fair. The issue that that's created for us is we have a growing team now. We're trying to attract some very talented international analysts and we don't have a business where the performance of the fund is aligned with the economics for the business. So if we have a cracking year of performance, we just get paid a base fee in the international fund and the business doesn't necessarily make more money. Obviously, you hope it eventually leads to flows and that leads to profitability, but that's a bit of a tough sell when you're trying to attract someone that's new to your business and say, well, we promise you that down the track you're going to get paid more money. And I would actually like to line it up. It needs to be long-term performance related, but I would like to say to people, you've had a, a good year, a good three years and a good five years, and we're going to pay you uh, some performance-related pay. It's not, you know, we're not going to be billions hedge fund style. It's not going to be crazy amounts of money, but we're, we ask people who work for us typically to work for less. It's a small business. We don't want to run a huge amount of fun. I just want to be able to align their remuneration with how the fund performs, and at the moment we don't have the business economics to do that. On the Aussie fund side, fund performs well, people will get paid out of that performance fee but we're trying to create something similar on the international side of things so we'd like to it's, it's not going to be perfect but to deal with some of those issues around finding the right benchmark try and come up with something that we think is fair and uh, and change it hmm. okay that's very transparent and yeah i appreciate that uh do you do you have your do you allow your analysts or do you encourage your analysts to invest in the fund alongside presumably you and so we strongly discourage people investing in stocks uh, in their own name. So your choices if you work for us are to invest in our funds or to invest in other funds. Mm -hmm. And I completely understand a bit of diversification. But I've just said from day one, I just don't want people, you know, if you're going to spend your spare time looking for stocks, I'd rather you were looking for ones that can fit in our portfolio rather than if you're doing it with your own money, you're probably going to be looking at potentially even smaller stocks than we can invest in. So mm. we've just wanted that alignment from day one. I've invested all of my savings in our two funds. We don't expect everyone to do that, but we do expect them to be aligned with the investors whose money they're investing. Mm. Fair enough. Speaking of investing your own money, um, we talked about this off air, you don't own a house? Correct. Is that? I reckon some of our listeners would be keen to know because you wrote an article, and I'll, well, a couple of articles, I'll link to them in the show notes, that um, one of the great articles was that house prices are driven by credit availability. Um, why don't we touch on that and then let's tie that off with where you see, well, maybe if you're even going to buy a house, that could probably, or if you're in the market. Um, so why don't you explain what the credit availability, uh, I suppose the angle that you pursued with that and how it's tied to incomes and then we can maybe just have some musings about the uh, 
current state of yeah. the Aussie uh, property market. I almost, I mean, the the blog got a lot of readership. It's it's almost so obvious that most people say, well, duh, because anyone that you talk to, that they're not sitting down doing calculations about what a house is actually worth. They start by going to the bank and saying to the bank, how much will you lend me? And then they take that money and say, well, what's the best I can get for the amount of money that I've got? I think everyone pretty much understands that that's the, the way the market works, but we still have this whole banking sector, whole economy really, that says this house is worth X, yet... Mm it's really set by the amount that the bank is willing to lend. So I, I view it all really as income lending. I mean, the, the banks are saying you have a certain amount of income, we can lend you a certain amount of money against that, and that then sets the value of the house. And they know that. Like if you go and, I, mean, I can probably say his name, he won't mind, but Greg Hoffman, who we've already touched on a few times, he's, he's chairman of our business, he's got a few gigs, he doesn't have a wage, but... He's a reasonably wealthy guy and he can't get a mortgage. Like you can go to the bank and say, I want a mortgage with a 20% LVR, but I don't have any income and they won't give it to you. Mm. It seems crazy to me because the risk of a 20% LVR would seem very, very low, but the model is you have income, we lend you money, you go and buy the price. So the, the marginal price, in my view, is completely set by the amount of credit the banks are willing to lend. And you've had this trend over 20 years of interest rates falling, incomes rising very nicely, therefore the amount that they can lend has grown exponentially and, and that's where we are in terms of house prices. What's interesting is that the percentage of income devoted to paying mortgages has stayed roughly the same. It's something like 10% of disposable income. So. We, we don't have a serviceability issue at today's interest rates. Um, people's problem is how they're going to pay the principal off rather than servicing the interest. But you can actually see directly how the price of houses has gone up alongside the amount of credit that the banks have been able to, to lend because of lower rates and, and higher salaries. So I think that has also become self-perpetuating. So many people have made so much wealth out of house prices going up that they think it can't go in the other direction. I don't want to timestamp this conversation too much, but towards the end of 2018, we had, I suppose, a clampdown on lending, LVRs, etc. And then we had the lead up to the Banking Royal Commission. And it seems to me there were these forces put in place on the banks rather than on consumers. The, the, the banks were held more accountable and that may have constricted some of the credit availability. Do you have any view on, I suppose, that and... and, and because if you're saying that credit availability may, is a key determinant of house prices, where does that leave house prices going forward, do you think? So I am absolutely, there are a lot of people, including the RBA, saying, well, this is as much demand-driven as it is supply-driven. In my view, it is completely banks saying this same person who I would lend a million dollars to a year ago, I'll only now lend 800000 Two things that they're doing that's very different is they are stress testing everyone to at least 7%, in some cases 7.5% interest rates. So although the actual rate is only 4, you're being assessed as if it were 7.5 and that has severely curtailed the amount that some people uh, can borrow. And then they're actually genuinely trying to assess what people's living expenses are rather than taking this stupid HEM index, which you know for a family of four people in Sydney was saying you could live for... $30,000 a year. It was just crazy. So I think those two things combined, and, and you can, you know, I've got a mortgage broker friend. It is 
absolutely obvious that they are curtailing the amount of money that they would lend. And from my perspective, that has to mean lower house prices. There's an article in the paper today talking about ANZ saying we might have gone too far. So they are going to very quickly realise that their own behaviour is hurting the value of their own security and therefore they're better off turning the taps back on if they can. And it's probably not going to go back to 40% interest only like we were a few years ago or to people not having to provide any verification of incomes. But I think you'll see a response over the next six months uh, for the banks not being quite as tight as they have been when it comes to availability of credit. Well, I'm sure it's in their best interest to uh, to loosen their belt a little bit if they can. You seem like a guy that reads quite a bit or you know digests a lot of information. Um, are there any blogs or podcasts that you listen to religiously? I might, I might add that you've got a fantastic one yourself, the Forager one. Um, no, is the short of it. I, I read more. I would say I read a lot of newspapers, a lot of books, I love the FT Alphaville blog, but that's embedded into the, the FT website. I try and read a lot of non-finance stuff, if I can, as well. So I actually read a lot of fiction, which a lot of people find surprising, but I think good, most good fiction has a lot of very valuable lessons in it. Yeah, and then magazines. I'm still actually a bit old school in terms of my reading. I still read the hard copy of the newspaper most days. We get it delivered to the office, and I... I prefer that, you know, if I want to set aside an hour and actually read properly, if I'm on my computer and the email's coming in and the phone's ringing, so I take myself away and try and read the whole newspaper cover to cover, which I find much easier through a hard copy. So you said, did you say you set aside an hour to do that or roughly? Yeah, at least normally. Yeah. yeah, by the time I read the Fin and the business section of the Australian and mm. if I want to get The Economist read across a week as well, then that will take me at least an hour every day. I think that's a really good way to do it. Charlie Munger talks about that a lot. It's paying yourself that hour. I suppose you are the most valuable client at the end of the day. For me, it was religious to get up and to read things like the Farnham Street blog or the Collaborative Fund with Morgan Housel. Those types of blogs I find really, really informative and I get a lot from it. I try not to clutter my life too much as well. So I walk to work. I'm fortunate enough to live close enough to walk to work and I've listened to the odd podcast over the years, but I also just like a bit of peace and quiet, think about the day that's coming, walk into work and a bit of that meditation time. I don't listen to anything when I run and and that's quite a few hours a week for me or out running, but I just like the time on my own as well. Mm, Sure. I suppose a good way to know what you're up to is to follow you on social media. You've got obviously LinkedIn, but you've also, you're also pretty active on Twitter. Is that right? Much more so than LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. Don't try and track me down on LinkedIn because <laughs> I get in trouble for not getting back to people for six months. <laughs> and there's obviously the Forager website and you've got a newsletter. Is that right? Anyone Correct. So I'm at Forager Steve on Twitter. You can subscribe to our blog, which is foragerfunds.com forward slash news. All easy to, to find up there. And one of the funds is listed on the ASX. Correct. So our Australian fund is closed-ended. You talked about right clients earlier. I mean, this is probably the ultimate structure for our mm. our type of investing. It's the same fund that we've run for 10 years, but we got support from the client base to close it and list it on the stock exchange. Mm. And then the, the international fund, which is the one we would like to grow over time, but it's still a, a work in progress, I think, in terms of proving the performance to people. It's, it's open-ended. Mm. Okay, great. I... I wanted to circle back to something that you mentioned at the very beginning of the conversation. You said it was fortuitous that you ended up at UBS, and it sounds like it was. But it also sounds like a lot of the things that have come to you have been earned rather than, say, lucky. And I, I, before I came in to talk to you, I spoke to some people. I said, oh, what should I talk to him about? What should I ask him? And 
overwhelmingly the response was, well, we think he has loads of integrity. And most many of these people haven't met you personally, but they've seen what you've done on you know, TV or on the website or what have you. I've, I read a tweet and it was so concise recently and it said the, the best competitive advantage anyone can have is being a nice person. So I wanted to take an opportunity for, to, to throw that at left field and just see what you think in, 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 in determining how much of that has come, come to you because you've been open-minded and approachable versus just luck. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought of it as luck, but when I talk about my luck, it has been a a few people in my life that have really looked looked after me, and they've probably done that mm. because they liked me or thought I was a nice person or, or thought I needed help. One of those, <laughs> yeah, one, of one of those things. But yeah, there are people that that have really helped me and made me feel comfortable. Is probably the most important thing. I think something else is that I've never ever had a grand plan and I'd still say I don't Mm -hmm. I get up every day and I think I've got some principles that I want to live my life by and there's some things that I know I don't want to do and I'm not going to fall into I don't want to have a lot of debt in my life and Mm -hmm. there are things that I see make other people happy and I just I'm not going to do that but I've also just been able to say well this sounds like a good idea it fits with the way I want to live my life and I'm going to twist and I'm going to do that so there's been luck that a lot of those things have worked out but also I think a lot of flexibility um we we talked about me renting earlier but we're we're moving house in a few weeks time from one rental place to another and we went from not even thinking about moving house to having agreed to move into a new place in the space of 24 hours which caused my wife a huge amount of uh, distress because she hadn't actually seen it in person by the time we'd signed a lease but you know, it's near where we, we talked a lot about what we didn't like about the place that we were in, some of the things that we wanted. It's nearby, so it's got a lot of the benefits. But I went to the viewing. There were a lot of people there. I thought the place was exceptionally good value for what they were renting it for, and I thought it's going to go quickly. And, you know, I've always been one to say when that opportunity is there, you just need to you need to take it. And you're not going to be right all of the, the time. I, I love that. Yogi Berra quote, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. And I've really taken that philosophy through my life that you're not going to get them all right, but you need to make decisions and, and you need to make, move forward and you need to try things. Alan Moss actually said that to me about business. We'd been struggling away with Intelligent Investor for a long time and it wasn't performing particularly well. And we were thinking about the funds management business and uh, he said to Greg and I at the time, he said, you need to try more than funds management. You just need to try lots of things and you need to be prepared to shut them down. And I think that's true of life as well. Like have a crack at things and if it doesn't work, accept it quickly and move on and try something else. That's fantastic advice. I'm going to ask this question because it might, and it might be redundant, but it's my favorite one, so I ask it anyway. If you could go back and tell, and tell a younger you one thing about money, finance, or investing, what would it be? Spend less than you earn. Uh, I, I, honestly, I think so many people put so much time into what return they're going to earn on their investments. But you know, my colleague Gareth Brown is a very, very good saver. And if anyone needs an example of how to get yourself into a very good position in life without getting paid squillions of, of dollars and you know his investment returns have been good but it hasn't been that that's driven his situation it's just regular and constant saving and, and once you get that perpetual motion going it can be very powerful great advice steve thanks for joining me on the show thanks on thanks again for tuning into the australian investors podcast for further episodes head to www.raskfinance.com to provide feedback nominate a guest or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. 
Cheers to our financial futures.